0: Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. One of the hottest, most controversial topics in American education is admissions to selective high schools in New York City. It involves issues of preparation, income inequality, race, social justice, and so much more. I would also argue it's a case of getting what you wish for, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. More than anything, there are lessons to be learned that apply to the education of bright students in general, which is why I thought this would be an important topic for today's episode. Our guest today has a unique perspective on these issues. Steve Fredericks has been a New York City K-12 teacher, a professor, and a highly successful business leader in several industries. For the past decade, he has been the executive director of New York Edge, the largest provider of after-school programming in the country. Dr. Fredericks is also the creator of the Excellence Project, a unique program for bright urban students in New York City. Steve, welcome to Bright Now.
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here.
0: Why why don't we start with a description of the Excellence Project? What is it and what are your goals for these students?
1: Well, in order to describe what it is, let me tell you what the problem was that that we were looking at here. Um, we, We saw a study from Vanderbilt. Um, university and they, they did a study of over 10,000 elementary school students and it revealed that black students are 66% less, Hispanic students are 47% less likely than white students to be placed in gifted programs. New York Edge is an organization that uh, for over 25 years has worked in under-resourced schools with the most underserved students in those schools. Um, So we basically are are working in struggling schools in in an urban area, in the urban areas of New York city. Um, When we looked at the New York city school population, uh, what we found out was not surprisingly that black and Hispanic students make up 65% of the total elementary school population, but um, only 27% of the elementary gifted and talented population. Mm -hmm. And so, we said, you know, this is really a, an issue that we have to face head up, heads up uh, and he, head on, I mean. And, uh, and the reason I'm saying that is that, as everybody knows, uh, a, a lot of the funding that has gone into uh, public schools across the country uh, have been primarily focused on uh, closing what's called the achievement gap, which, which is fine. Uh, obviously, we want all children to be literate, to be able to do mathematics at, at, you know, certainly levels that can make them successful citizens. Um, but on the other hand, um, what we're finding is that there are very few programs, uh, certainly during the school day in these urban areas and rural areas too, um, that focus on, uh, advanced learners within those subgroups. Mm -hmm. And so, um we thought, you know, the problem now is really for us, you know, how do we close what we call the opportunity gap? And if you don't identify these students as advanced learners, you can't give them the opportunities uh, to excel. So we started what was called the Excellence Project. And the idea there was to identify students, uh, black and Hispanic students primarily, but students uh, in these high poverty groups, that are not identified as advanced learners because they're often grouped uh in classes where they're mixed in with many many students who are not performing at grade level and i'll talk about that in a second Um, but as a result of of them being grouped with those students they're often uh set to their own devices so we uh went in as an after-school program and said you know we're not constrained by budgets in the same way we're not constrained by uh, who we can hire uh, the kind of expertise we're looking for and certainly what the curriculum is we decided when we uh, were going to try out a pilot that we were going to go into a school that was having significant issues regarding uh, children reading doing math etc at grade level uh, we didn't want to go into a school that was having any kind of uh, moderate success we wanted to prove the point that if you can go into these schools and still identify children who have the potential to be advanced learners. And so uh, our mission there is to go identify these students, which we've done, uh, and then to work with them in an after school setting where we don't have the constraints of the school day.
0: I want to elaborate on a point that you just made that I think is critically important when we're trying to close excellence gaps, is that we uh, people come up with these really cool pilot projects, but then they put them into urban and uh, rural schools where they are finding ways to meet their advanced students' needs. Um, and yet we know that one of the biggest hurdles to overcome when we're trying to work with these students is just sort of this pervasive attitude of low expectations. So even if the pilot works, People go, well, that's a pretty good school, though. It would never work with my kids in my school because my school's struggling. And I think it's really important to do exactly what you've done here with the Excellence Project is to say, yeah, it's going to be super hard. But we're still going to go into these schools that are really struggling because that's where the need is. And if it works there, then there's no reason why it can't work anywhere. I just, I just think that's a really important bit, bit of logic here.
1: Well, that was critical to our um, approach as well. And, and in fact, uh, just as a point of reference, um, uh, we, we started with third and fourth graders. And in this particular school, um, less than one out of three students were doing uh, math or ELA at grade levels. And uh, the, the statistics for the fourth grade weren't much better, slightly higher than one third, uh, were doing math and uh, ELA. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that the, the bulk of you know, the majority of these students were failing. And, and that continues, as we know, year after year after year. So we went into this saying, gee, if we could uh, actually identify some of these kids who have the potential. It didn't mean, by the way, that some of the kids we chose were even reading at grade level or doing math at grade level. But we thought they had the potential not only to get to grade level, but to excel past it.
0: Right. They were relatively advanced as opposed to advanced already.
1: That's correct, because we, we looked at local norms as opposed to national norms.
0: What does the project actually look like when the students come to you after school?
1: It is a program that goes three hours a day, five days a week uh, for, for 36 weeks, in addition to a summer program that goes 10 hours a day, uh, five days a week for seven weeks. Um, so out of the, during the school year, Um, The children we've identified, and who, by the way, also self-identify, we we don't restrict the child from coming in who has interest to to this, Mm -hmm. assuming that their parents or caretakers agree. Um, We, uh, they're part of the after-school program, but for half of the after-school program, their activity is participating in the Excellence Project. And what the Excellence Project does is it, um, we have a hybrid teaching model, which is that every student in the Excellence Project is given a a laptop computer, um, calculator, uh, earphones, etc. We've adopted uh, online curriculum that that has artificial intelligence embedded in it, uh, which which basically means that it will either accelerate that child (coughs) through math or ELA, (coughs) or it will uh, go back and remediate because the child needs other things going on. In addition to that, we have uh, two people in the in the classroom, two professionals. One is the, an instructor, um, and we, we tend to focus on STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, but that instructor then will take groups together and work individually and with groups uh, in real time. So when they're not on the online curriculum, they're working with the instructor. And then we also have a mentor slash counselor who works on social-emotional development is the conduit between uh, the children, the parents, the school. Um, and and they will participate in activities. Uh, for example, uh, every day when they arrive, the first thing they do is uh, probably 10 to 15 minutes of meditation. They do yoga. and um, and, and the results so far are... Are quite uh, looks to be impressive.
0: But can, you, can you talk a little bit about the sorts of growth you've had with these students now? I, I, think, I think it's worth noting that you've been doing this for about a school year and a half, not quite, um, yeah. so it, it really still is an early pilot, but um, like, what, what sorts of evidence of success are you seeing?
1: What we found was that the, these kids were in the range of 35 to 50% higher on a, on a score Uh, than their counterparts. So if you look at, um, for example, percentages that are at grade level, in the third grade um, on math, for example, there were upwards of 83%. uh, On math, on ELA, uh, almost 70%, compared to the school, um, which was around 30% at Mm -hmm. grade level, the district around between 37 to 40%, and the city, uh, which is sitting around 50%, that's the third grade. So we, we so we knew one thing for sure. We we're, were identifying potential students that, that were we thought advanced learners and that was proving to be true. And then fourth grade had very similar results. Um, in addition to that, we were also looking at uh, social emotional um, um, points and, and what we saw was behavioral change was significant. Um, students were, um, very, became very focused. We, we've heard from their parents that changed, you know, within months, they saw major behavioral changes.
0: Um, I, I think it also is worth noting that, um, from a research perspective, what the excellence project is doing is what we would call front loading which is providing a a rigorous, challenging set of opportunities for students who wouldn't normally get it, not necessarily for the short-term gain, but for the longer-term gain. That by by providing these students with a better intellectual foundation – in this after-school setting, that they're gonna do better in fourth grade, they're gonna do better in fifth grade. And as we know, learning builds on itself by definition, right, and so helping these students out now in early to mid-elementary is gonna pay dividends years later, which I think is really important. Um, so let's let's we'll we'll come back to the excellence project, but I'd like to transition to this uh, selective high school kerfuffle that we've got going on. Um, let's start with a, just a very basic, simple question. I just for people who aren't familiar with how selective high schools work within within the city. Um, what are the role of uh, selective high schools in New York City? Are there like two? Are there a hundred? How, how how does that work?
1: Basically, there's eight selective high schools that. Um uh, depend on testing uh, to get into, and and these were, uh, these are schools that were founded as, as in some cases uh, just about a hundred years ago, a little less than a hundred years ago, um, where they would um, try to identify students through testing eventually, uh, who. Um, would be uh, be able to excel in mathematics and science, uh, but it was basically uh, intellectual capacity that they were looking for.
0: I can can and, you give us the names of, of some of them? Sure. I'm, I'm sure people have heard so, of a few of them.
1: Right. So um, For many years, uh, Bronx High School of Science was seen as the premier specialized high school in New York City, and, and, and it had, obviously, national uh, reputation as well. Um, uh, you again had to take a, a test to get in. I, I was uh a student in um in the Bronx and and I will admit I tried I took the test and <laughs> didn't get in. <laughs> so I was actually very disappointed at that. But it is what it is, you know. Um and uh so Stuyvesant is another school. Stuyvesant mm-hmm. now is probably seen as the preeminent uh specialized school, but there's Brooklyn Tech uh and and some others. And um So that's what the situation is um, in terms of how you get in. Uh, You take one test and it's binary. You're either in or you're out.
0: Let me explain briefly uh, why this is so controversial is, Mm -hmm. I guess it was about um, this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier. um, For some reason, uh, it caught the public's attention, the uh, media's attention that these schools had uh, over time have um, become increasingly less diverse based on uh, uh, family income, uh, race, Um, and it's worth noting that um, historically they were considered fairly diverse schools. Um, but here we are, uh, a couple decades into the 21st century, and they are not looking diverse at all. So this controversy has grown, um, but then it has really peaked again in what the last month, right? Because yes. the admissions uh, statistics for next year just came out. Can you can you share what those are? They're shocking.
1: All right. Well, look, I, you know, I, I think it'd probably be helpful just to really get a context on this. If you go back to 1979, let's just take Stuyvesant, because because what came out in the last couple of weeks was the result of the entrance exam for Stuyvesant. So if you just look at Stuyvesant, in 1979, uh, African-Americans made up about 13% of the population. In 1994, that dropped to 5%. And in 2018, uh, two weeks ago, what we found out that uh, out of an acceptance number of 895 students. Um, A total of seven African-American students were accepted, less than 1%. So we've gone from 1979-13, 1994-5, 2000, you know, currently less than 1%. Brooklyn Tech is even more striking. 1994, African-Americans made up 37% of the school population. Um, They now... In, in the latest stats I got, it's it's under 5%.
0: Hard to find any good news in any of those numbers. There's That's no just grotesque, and, yeah.
1: And it's a diver- I mean, they don't have diversity. In the co- and, you know, everybody would say, well, fine. Well, let's figure out how to fix the problem. And the issue, of course, is that very often um, when educators and politicians try to fix the problem, they're looking to try to fix the problem in the next two to three years. Right. and you, short-term you solutions. And you have a systemic issue here which is not going to be fixed in two to three years uh there is a solution, though.
0: Yeah, um, before we get to that solution, um, and if people have been listening carefully, I think they know what we're going to say. But um, uh, I should say that a lot of the public solutions being offered, I think you and I would both classify those as uh, short-term fixes, sort of uh, feel-good equity fixes, like, okay, um, affirmative action for the number of seats for certain uh, racial subgroups or low-income students, or let's change the t- test or let's use different different tests. Um, and I, my concern, I'll speak just for uh, myself is that I even if those things work and I skeptical because um, that's normally where people go and it doesn't it doesn't seem to work very well, um, it's a very short-term solution on a long-term problem, right like this these these problems, these these excellence gaps grew over the long term. Um, why would we expect a quick fix solution to address the long-term problem? Um, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And here, here's the issue. You know, gifted and talented programs take place during the school day. Right. So often what happens is the, the school day budgets, um, when they get constrained, uh, one of the first programs to go are, are gifted and talented programs because the Seen as nice to have, but not critical. And by the way, since they serve a relatively small percentage of the school population, people think they're not missing anything. You can only imagine that as you start to uh, get into the urban schools that we're working in, uh, where budgets are severely constrained, um, there's rarely gifted and talented programs that exist. And if they do, they're generally not in the schools where these kids can take advantage of it. And so um, what what we've seen is that in, in New York, for example, um, gifted and talented programs um, were pretty much um, cut down to where you have to apply before you enter kindergarten. It's a K through, T, K through second grade program. There's pretty much nothing after that. And certainly in the schools that we work in, and we're in over 150 public schools, for example, there are very few uh, gifted and talented programs that exist.
0: The city made specific decisions about advanced programming for students about, what, 15 years ago, give or take a few years, um, uh, about how they changed the gifted ed programs, about advanced offerings in, say, middle schools, all things that you and I would have predicted Um, would remove opportunity uh, for lots of students and probably grow excellence gaps. And here we are in 2018, 2019, and people are saying, how did these excellence gaps form? This is horrible. Um, I think you have to look back and be honest about the situation, right? And say, um, well, I mean, specific decisions were made that helped grow these gaps, um, so what's a better approach, uh, than then, oh, let's just, uh, reserve seats for certain students or let's try different tests. What's a better long-term approach from your perspective?
1: Well, look, I don't think you, you wait until high school, certainly, and, and even middle school. I think for a lot of these kids, um, they're almost off the rails by that time, not to say you give up on them, but the, but the, the struggle is so much harder to get them back on track. Uh, I think you start young. And then what you're looking for is to work with these children three, four, five, six years in a row so that in our case, you know, we're looking at to see what will happen when these kids, and we're going to stay with them through elementary school into middle school and hopefully into high school and beyond. By the time they get to the point where they're testing into the specialized high schools, if even 10% of them actually got accepted into a specialized high school like Stuyvesant, where the acceptance rate, right now we know is 7 out of 895. You know, 7 would have gone to 11 or 12. That's an unbelievable increase just based on this one little small program we have. And if you start to multiply that out, uh, if you start to extrapolate that, assuming that we're successful, it will make an enormous difference uh, in, in the school populations of, of the specialized tools. So you solve the problem not by lowering the bar. You solve the problem by keeping the bar and basically asking the following question. You know, it's not about whether the entrance exam is unfair. The question is why students who attend public elementary and middle schools for eight or nine years are so unprepared to do well when they take it. Mm. And that's what we're trying to solve.
0: Just to sort of sum this up uh, in terms of what you're doing, you're, you're uh, using universal screening. You look at every student's data when you started the program. You're using local norms. Uh, You're trying to find students who seem to have the most potential within that school building, not citywide. Uh, You're uh, front-loading heavily. You're focusing a lot on social-emotional learning. And you're using specially trained educators who um, have a a passion for working with this population of students. Uh, um, I mean, that's – if you had to encapsulate it roughly, that's that's kind of what you're doing, right?
1: Yes, and there's one other factor, and we call it self-identification. Ah, right. And and self-identification is really an important factor for us, uh, because uh, as you're well aware, this issue of uh, homogeneous grouping is is controversial, um, and and which is why they're part of a larger cohort of kids in the after-school program, but we pull them out for this, just as we pull out kids who are working on you know who are good athletes or we pull out children you know to work on uh, whether they're good musicians or dancers etc but we may not have identified all the kids who think they are interested and might be advanced learners so any child who self-identifies and whose parent and or caretaker agrees to allow them to be in the program we automatically uh, allow them to come in and we actually had three children who did self-identify, and two are doing spectacularly well. And one felt after a couple of three weeks that the the work was just too difficult, Mm -hmm. which was fair, um, and dropped out. So um, we're trying to cover all the bases here. And and so far, it, it seems to be working.
0: I should also note, Steve, that uh, universal screening, local norms, front-loading, flexible um, identification, social-emotional learning, specially trained educators are all research-identified features that you can uh, read about in the uh, thrilling bestseller, excellence gaps in education by myself and Scott Peters available uh, at a bookstore near you. But seriously, thank you so much for being here today, Steve. This was great and given us a lot to think about. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Always great talking with you.
0: That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, Support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Plucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coglin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.